CIUT 89.5 Toronto. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Hi, I'm Daniel Garber from CIUT Friday Morning. Hi, this is Donna G from The More the Merrier. Hi, I'm Mark Tara from Rainbow Country and together we are Team CIUT bringing you coverage of TIFF 2020. How are you? Good evening and welcome. It's the opening night. Tonight we thank you. I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you all for holy shit, there's a lot of y'all. Um, I'm very proud to be here tonight and I'm so grateful that you joined us. I'll stop till you get enough. Hello Toronto! Toronto, the best of them all. If you ever think about the best place to watch this I want to thank Toronto because you have always honored, celebrated, exalted female directors. The warmth and the love that you gave me is something I will never forget in my life. It's so exciting to be here at Toronto in this gorgeous theater. This is just like Christmas Day. Thanks to you for coming. This is truly a very special evening for me. This is why we do what we do, you know. I love this festival and it's an honor to be back. Behind me is what we call society, what we see in our everyday and what we have on screen. Let's keep on doing movies about us. We're making pictures about what's happening today in society. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Hi, CIUT listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this special TIFF 2020 broadcast. This is Donna G. And joining me for the special coverage are Daniel Garber. You can hear his segment, Daniel Garber at the Movies, every Friday on the show, simply called CIUT Friday Morning. You can also find him at culturalmining.com. And he has the number one LGBT podcast. It's Mark Tara, producer and host of the syndicated radio show, Rainbow Country. And I'm Donna G, host of The More the Merrier, Wednesday mornings, 1 a.m. to 2 a.m., film, theater, and arts at large coverage. Today, Daniel Garber will be flashing back to Tiff of the Past. Daniel will be flashing back to The Lighthouse. Mark will have an interview from TIFF 2020 about No Ordinary Man, about the life of jazz musician Billy Tipton. Like Mark, I'll also have a TIFF 2020 interview for you. This one is with short film director Tiffany Xiang about her film Sing Me a Lullaby. My name is Charles Officer and I'm the writer and director of Invisible Essence, The Little Prince on CIUT 89.5 FM.
You can find him at marktara.com. He is Mark Tara, producer and host of the syndicated radio show Rainbow Country. It is also the number one LGBT podcast. Hi, Mark. Thanks, Donna. Coming up next, my interview with the filmmakers of the new trans documentary, No Ordinary Man. Ashling Chin Yi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I am well. Chase Joint, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks so much for asking. Excellent. The the two of you are the co-creators, the co-directors of a new documentary, No Ordinary Man. But I always say this to my guests. First and foremost, welcome to the show to have your voices, your stories be heard by the LGBT community and beyond. So thank you so much for that, first and foremost. So the two of you are co-directors of the new documentary, No Ordinary Man, that's playing at TIFF 2020. Congrats on getting the film done. Thank you. Thank you. How are you feeling about the film? Excited. It's, um, you know, it's been... We've been we've been working on this movie for you know a year and a half more with Amos Mack as well and it's who is a co-writer on the film and it's just really exciting to launch our baby into the world. Ashling, let's let's stay with you here. When did you first hear about uh, Billy Tipton? That's the the subject of this new documentary. I first heard about Billy Tipton um, from our producer, Sarah Spring of Parabola Films. She was uh, interested in developing a project about him um, and and was showing me like different material with Billy Jr. and different uh, and how Billy's Billy Jr. and his mother, Kitty Tipton, were being absolutely vilified and Billy Tipton was being vilified on on talk shows in the late 1980s and in the early 90s. And it was clear that his story was being, you know, bastardized by by the mainstream media. So it opened up a curiosity um, to, to, to learn more about him. Like I've always been attracted to telling stories about people who aren't always having their stories told properly about them or just not having their stories told at all. Um, so that was kind of the, the, my first uh, introduction to him and then quickly started talking to Amos Mack, um, who had heard of Billy, you know, you know, before and had had known of him as a historical figure, a historical trans figure. And that's where the kind of idea and kind of, you know, started to really grow and kind of crystallize. And Chase joined for yourself. When did you first hear about Billy Tipton? You know, my answer to that question is in a lot of ways in chorus with so many of the participants in our documentary, which is to say, you know, as a trans man myself, 
Billy Tipton has always existed in the ether. You know, Billy Tipton has always been um, a fabulous haunting of a trans masculine person in history that, um, you know, many have made uh, a part of their own personal becoming, proof that people like us existed in, in, in decades prior. And then it was really through the invitation to join this project and the ongoing research that I began to understand Tipton's life and history in new ways. So, Ashling, the documentary No Ordinary Man, what is this documentary about? This documentary, it's about a lot of things, um, and we hope it's about a lot of things, but it's looking at the life of Billy Tipton, who was a uh, transmasculine jazz musician who, from Oklahoma City who came up in the 40s and 50s playing playing jazz music in small clubs, lounges, and touring around like that, you know, doing, going on to radio stations and stuff like this. And, and he, he lived a very successful life. He was married five times. And then after he died, it was outed, it was leaked and outed to the media that he was a transgender man. And after that, his story was changed to be, um, told that he was, uh, you know, he was basically an ambitious woman who wanted to play jazz so much that, he, that, uh, that they put on a pair of pants and a suit to, 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 to follow that dream. And it was, and basically our film is trying to understand his story through a array of different trans people's lenses um, to, to really explore who, who he was and also where his story and its impact kind of sits today uh, in a contemporary in a contemporary place. Chase is always better at answering that question than I am, though. <laughs> oh, I think you hit so many of uh, so many of our speaking points. Yeah, I think you know <laughs> the the legacy of Billy Tipton has been controlled by the mainstream media, and in particular the talk show circuit. And so, together with our creative team, we thought, what would happen to the story of Billy Tipton if we told it from a trans perspective and, and centered the voices of those who were most impacted by the telling of this particular life story. So Chase, the documentary tells Billy Tipton's story th through current day trans artists. Why did you guys decide to use this approach for the documentary? You know, one of the things that I think we continue to say about history is that it is not a stable story, that in fact, the history we understand is just a repetition of stories by people who hold positions of power. And so what would we learn about Billy Tipton by inviting multiple people to the table to reflect on his significance? And because, you know, our understanding of transness and gender nonconformity is also not stable, what it meant to be a trans person in in the 1980s, for example, is very different from what it might mean to be a trans person in 2020. How could we create a much more kaleidoscopic portrait using Billy Tipton as our anchor? And so in some ways that returns to Ash's first reaction of, you know, what's the movie about? The movie's about a lot of things. Precisely that, that yes, we made a film about Billy Tipton, but we also made a film about what's at stake when you attempt to tell a story about a marginalized person in history. And Ashling, the documentary features Billy Tipton's story, Billy Tipton, 
Jr. Talk to me about the process of getting Billy Tipton Jr. to be part of this documentary. Was it uh, easy, difficult? How was that journey? I mean, we were really lucky with Billy Jr. He has been, you know, since his father's passing, like he has been, he's been the most vocal in defending his his father's legacy and defending his father's, you know, his father of being a, a, a good, a good father, a good husband, somebody who we loved, somebody who should be revered in so many ways. So when, when we approached him about telling this story, this, this story in a documentary, and not just in kind of the news clips that were that he was getting uh, victimized by in the in the late '80s and early '90s. Um, he was incredibly trusting and generous, and we spent well, I think four days in Spokane with him, getting to know him, looking at looking through all of his uh, memorabilia of his father, and and he was from from the start just always like you know, embraced us with open arms and and was incredibly generous with his father's music and and all of these things so it really it really was a, a wonderful journey with him actually and the audio tapes that are part of the documentary did those come through billy tipton jr some of them did there's some of his recordings um when we hear billy's voice singing or talking though those were recordings that were done uh for for live radio at one of his live performances or a couple of his live performances. So we got those from Billy Jr. But um, there was a biography that was written about Billy Tipton um, by this woman named Diane Middlebrook, who had done, uh, who told his story in a very problematic way, but like she did an incredible amount of research on his life. And so, and did tons of interviews, um, did, you know, really, really went around all over uh, the US where, where Billy had, and you know, been playing and and touring around and living, and she had donated all of these interview recordings to Stanford University, which is where she taught. So we were able to. Amos Mack and I went to Stanford about a year and a half ago, and we got to like dig through all of this research that was done by 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 Middlebrook um, and access to these to hours of these interviews. So I'm calling this the, the the talk show tour, so to speak. Uh, Billy Tipton's family, uh, his wife and son, Billy Tipton Jr., they were on essentially the, the talk show circuit on Oprah, on Sally Jesse Raphael and others. Chase, I'm interested to know, they were doing these shows after Billy Tipton's passing, and a man that was so private in his life, did it surprise you that after his death, his family became so public with his with his story and everything that came out? Did that surprise you that such a private man in his passing, his family would become so public? Well, I think one of the important things to recognize about his family in those contexts is that they are trying to do right by him in many ways. And that's one of the things that I find most compelling about Billy Jr., both historically in that talk show footage and in the contemporary moment as he continues to reflect on his father's life, is that his narrative is unchanging, that he had a father who he loved and that he spent 
important time with throughout his childhood. And we can watch the way Kitty, one of Billy's partners, says he was a man, he was a father, he was a loving person who deserved respect. You know, I think what we experience in that talk show montage, though, is the violence of the medium itself. So we understand that in this moment in the 80s and 90s, the presence of trans people on talk shows was a circus spectacle. And, you know, the questions of trans, uh, asked of trans and gender nonconforming people on these shows focused on essentially three things, genitals, pain, and deception. And so the family is being put through the same machine as some of the trans subjects. But I do think that they exist there in defense of their father and in, de in defense of their partner. And uh, even while, you know, they could be seen or interpreted by some as contributing to, to the spotlight. But they had to go public to, to try to clear his name. I think that's right. And I think that that is, if we look back, I think that that is what motivated some of their ongoing appearances. So there's a, there's a term that's uh, no longer in use, but I have to say personally, I love it. And the term is this, female husbands. And there's a great book out called Female Husbands by author Jen Mannion, and she's been a guest on the show. And essentially, the book recounts stories of women who lived their lives as men, even being married to other women, dating back to the 1700s. Fast forward to Billy Tipton and his story in the 40s and the 50s. Ashling, I'm interested to know, did you guys get any insight while doing this documentary as to why Billy Tipton did what he did? How he got that strength to do what he did? Because we're talking about the 40s, the 50s. There weren't role models back then of people really truly living their truths. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing that we don't have any diaries from Billy. We don't have anything that says, oh, this is exactly what he was thinking to answer the questions that we're asking in the film. So that's why we, we wanted to not make something that said just told one story or one way that we imagine he, you know, um, why he lived his life in the way that he lived his life, apart from the fact that he lived it, you know, very honestly and authentically as a man and the people, all everyone who loved and knew him um, knew he was a man. And that was, that's the record we have to go off of, you know? So it's, um, so in, in that, it's like, that's why we wanted to tell it from this, like Chase says, like this kaleidoscope of, of experiences, because there isn't, you know, we can't point at like, well, this is his, final testimonial about right. all the things he's ever he's ever thought or mm -hmm. the truths he's ever wanted to live but but we hope that we hope that in this in this film that we're able to restore you know his the 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 respect that that the people that loved him had for him and that people who knew him knew him as this very like loving and giving person um who was also very talented as a musician and also was so many other things because our lives are quite are, are more complex than just one motivation to do any one thing. And I think it really speaks to the human spirit and the strength of the human spirit, right? Back in the 40s and the 50s, the, the strength that he would have to have to do what he did. 
And I think one of the things that's interesting, even if you bring up the, the book Female Husbands, is that the subtitle of that book is uh, a trans history, right? And what I love about that is this sort of expansiveness of what's possible under the umbrella term of trans. And, and as we were journeying with our various interview subjects, the question was never, was Billy Tipton a trans person? Can we lock this into place? And can we get to the truth of his potential identificatory past, right? It was more what's at stake in asking these questions or what does it mean to look back from our contemporary moment and think, you know, is there someone here that, that I can find meaning with, right? Enduring meaning. And, and I think that there's a kind of slipperiness there that's, that's very productive. I love the moment in the film where Thomas Page McBee says, you know, it's important that we can look back, but we might be wrong. Or, you know, when Amos Mack says, I don't think Billy was thinking in the way we're thinking now. And all of these moments being okay to have trans men reflecting on, on their history, even if it is, is speculative. How would I summarize the story of Billy Tipton? He was a transmasculine jazz musician. Pretty simple. The first phrase that always comes to my mind is the gentleman's gentleman. You know, just the, the consummate professional and the gentleman's gentleman. The first time that I learned about Billy Tipton was probably 2003 or 2004. Um, just before I started my medical transition, I was doing a ton of research at that, at that point. And so I wanted to learn about uh, my ancestors essentially that came before me. In a way, Billy has been with me um, in sort of the background before my transition and thinking about him again from the place of being a trans man was very interesting for me because I think I had held him, um, you know, in, in just a sort of general context of queerness prior to that. And Chase, what's the overall, uh, where's this film heading once it's done the, the festival circuit, that sort of thing? Well, we have an exciting festival tour that continues to gain momentum, um, many of which we are not allowed to announce quite yet, but we're feeling very, very excited about its, um, its ongoing showcases. And, you know, our goal is to get the project in the living rooms and on the screens and in front of the eyes of as many people as possible. And so um, we, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the, the concluding sentence to that is, but uh, we're not gonna stop, you know, to, to the point about, uh, uh, of funding, we live in a, a culture and a climate where you know people say films about trans content are hard to sell, and we as a team just believe that that's a wholly unacceptable mm. uh, statement, and uh, we will not be kept down. I love that. <laughs> we will not be kept down. Powerful words, Ashling Chin Yi. I hope I didn't mess up your name throughout this interview. Not at all. You said it perfectly. <laughs> and and Chase joined. I hope I said your name correctly. You did indeed. <laughs> thank you both for being on the show. And thank you for I've seen the documentary. Well done. Powerful. Moving. Well done to both of you and to everyone involved. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
is City Councilor Kristen Wong Tam, and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. Hi, this is Donna G, sharing an interview with you that I did with director Tiffany Xiang. Uh, Tiffany is a director of Sing Me a Lullaby, which screens in the Shortcuts program, program number five, at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. The film is about her mother, who was separated from her own mother when she was five years old. In the short, Tiffany goes back to Taiwan to trace her mother's past. The film starts and you're video recording your mom. How does she feel about the camera being there? She just puts up with me. My mother has always been just an incredible supporter of whatever I was doing or up to. And that was 2005. I was off the heels of third year film school and um, wanting to take off on a trip. And she knew that I wanted to start filming in Toronto. And so she just kind of tolerates it. She's like, you know, like that's what her, she's just like, feels like, okay, that's what I I do. I just, you want to record, you just record. And I think after a while she just got used to it. So with that opening scene that you see of my mother, Um, She had already been kind of just used to me being around with the camera. And I think that's always been growing up. um, I've always been kind of behind the camera and just capturing things, whether it's for a film or a school project or just personal documentation. Um, I've been kind of that that family member always behind the camera. So she, she had gotten used to seeing that. However, this being a little bit different because, um, it was more focused on her and I believe that was quite new. And, and what I found surprising when reviewing the footage a decade later was to read into the nuances around how, how, how her, what her body holds and, and seeing that pain as well, revisiting that. And that was, that was quite challenging. At the time in, in 2005 where the documentary begins, um, had your mother always cried about uh, not seeing her family for, at that time, 30 years? You know what? Um, she always held it in. And she just wouldn't talk much about it. And I always thought that it's because she didn't want to share it. But in fact, I realized she actually just didn't have much memory to share and that they were all quite fragmented. And I think leading up, to um, my trip and leaving, um, I think the emotions were building up in that in in that during the, the, that month or so because we started having those conversations. Um, but in the past, when she did talk about it, there was always that silence. It was always the in between the sentences that I knew it was emotional for her to think about it, and and in many ways for her to brush over it. Um, if you see, there's a cut actually between in that opening scene where she actually walks off camera. Yes. And, and that's my mom would usually just walk away um, into the bathroom, into her room, and then she'll come back calm and collective. Like that's, that's kind of been, um, that's just her also her demeanor. Um, this uh, family gathering was just different because it was um, also one of the last few uh, family dinners we would have before my trip. And it was again, um, because I think we were already talking about it. 
Popo is an interesting figure in your film. Did you never think to ask Popo about your mother's past? Like my mother, I think that I had also adopted this uncomfortableness of asking and talking about difficult things. I didn't think I would be. Um, and also my language and communication with my grandmother, Popo, is very, was very limited back then. It, I was 21 and my Mandarin was, it pretty much sounded like a 10-year-old at the time. It was, and she only spoke Mandarin. And so the conversation could only go so far anyhow, but also inherently it is something that is difficult and uncomfortable to bring up because you you don't want to upset your elders and you don't want to bring up anything that will be taboo and 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 then result into any turmoil and so I didn't think that I would feel that same way that my mother had always kind of insinuated and told me about um, but when I had the few um, on-camera interviews with my grandmother and talking about the past that did come over me that feel that uncomfortable feeling of not wanting to bring up the past and anything that would make my grandmother be upset or not want to talk about Going back to the language for you, you had to learn Mandarin, which even though you said you spoke it at a, you know, the level of a 10-year-old, it's still you know, learning a language as an adult. How did you improve your Mandarin? You know, it's actually from my relationship with my grandmother. It, I, I hate to say it, mom and dad, it wasn't because of you two. You know, they're going to hate me for that. Um, it was spending time with my elders, my grandmother, and, and there was no option but to speak Chinese with them or try to, mm-hmm. and a lot of hand gestures and motioning for things and being around her and watching Chinese movies with her. And then on top of that, I think my Mandarin really improved when I was actually making my feature length documentary, The Apology, because one of the grandmothers in our film for The Apology um, is in rural China. And I had to, I spent over four or five years with their family filming and documenting them. And so again, my, sometimes I didn't have a translator with me and my Mandarin improved vastly with them. And so what was so interesting is that, and I say this a lot that I, I needed to make I needed to make both films for them to exist. I needed to start singing me a lullaby by finding my own biological grandmother. And then I needed to make the apology and finish it um, to learn from these grandmothers, not just language, but also the space in which we hold these stories and, and how important it is to do that before it's too late. Yes. Uh, one of the scenes that I like uh, in the film is when you go to the door and you're, you say, um, I'm here to, 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 to see my mother's husband or <laughs> you say something like that. In the- oh, yeah. oh my God, it's the worst. It was so <laughs> awful. I couldn't remember the, the word. And I end up saying, and I only realized this um, only in the last couple of years because I, I refused to watch the footage because it was like no one wants to see their 21-year-old self, right? And so <laughs> it was only in the last uh, couple of years filming this and, and really re- putting, you know, wrapping up the movie, going through all the archive footage, I was like, did I full-on just say I have a husband for you? Because <laughs> yes. the word 
husband and letter is the it sounds exactly the same it's the different completely different words but they the the the, the accent sounds so similar that i had said husband and yeah. not letter so if you could imagine knocking on someone's door and being like hi you don't know me i'm from toronto and i have a husband for you right <laughs> They were one so of the many challenge. <laughs> I know exactly. It was like this is a new delivery service I'm providing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you had such luck with with this film because you went at the right time for the database to be there in Taipei for you to find your grandmother. Yeah, no, you're you're right. Like if it was any time sooner, it would have been probably impossible. But I, I'd have to say. It, the generosity of people in Taipei and Taiwan, these the women and the staff that was there, they were so empathetic and confused. And I, I think they just, they thought I was so amusing. You know, really, it, it was so amusing to them because my Chinese was so crap. I had these names on a napkin. Like I literally showed up with this napkin <laughs> with names on it for them to, to, to type in. And it was so surreal for them that it, it, they went on that journey with me to, to make this work. And, you know, when we were there, um, other news out outlets actually got a hold of this story. So they also wanted to follow us along and they thought it was just, again, um, back then in 2005, this is, I found out this was right when Google Maps launched. Like they had just, it just got invented. Google, Google Earth, Google Maps. Mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't have it on our phones yet. Like we didn't have smartphones, but they had just like the actual um, database and, and the technology was invented in 2005. So it would be years later on where actually um, Google Maps and, and all that would be functional for our cell phones. So uh, 14 years of doing this, this film, why so long? I thought for a very long time after 2007, 2008, um, I had thought I had done something wrong. I thought I had made a mistake by going to find my mother's past, essentially. And does the truth really set you free? Maybe ignorance is truly bliss. And what if the truth doesn't actually set you free? What if it brings you more pain than anything else? Would you go back to wanting to not know? And it isn't your Hollywood ending, you know? It, it, it's, it's not like that in real life, you know? It, there are so much complexities to that, that for a young person, you immediately just think, shit, I did something wrong. What did I do? That was a mistake. Look how sad mom is. And I'm just going to bury this. And hopefully we could pretend that this never happened. Like there was, there was many years of, of feeling that guilt, um, but still documenting at the same time because I was filming the apology. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. The apology follows the lives of three former sex slaves during World War II. And they're all grandmothers now, still fighting for justice, still trying to come out to their own families. And it was through four years of production and filming and getting to know these elders that they taught me, no matter how painful, how difficult the truth is, 
we still need to know and family still needs to know because it enriches and, and tells a full story of who we are as people and the value in which that holds. And I saw the impact of what that looked like for their own family that inspired me to finish Sing Me a Lullaby. And, and that's, that's how the journey restarted again. And I, I started filming more and more and, and becoming more comfortable with also looking at the footage as well, because it took a long time to, to, to look at the things that we had documented as well. It was, I do see how, because we started making the film and be, while we were wrapping it up and because more people started understanding her story, I did notice how comfortable she started becoming in terms of talking about it. And in this own way, this empowerment that like she owned, like with her story. If you could imagine growing up only with fragments of, of memories that you never really knew about. I remember growing up and she would, when she did talk about her past, she always said the same thing. She said, before I met Popo, all of my childhood memory was always in the dark. I don't remember daylight. I was brought to Popo's house and I never saw my family again. And so you, you, I can't imagine living over 30 years at that time with all of these, like the mystery of it, you know, the mystery of why these things happen, where those pieces were and, and starting to create your own narratives to help you sleep at night because you know, wondering would be too painful. And that is an excerpt from an interview that I did with director Tiffany Xiong about her film, Sing Me a Lullaby, screening at the Toronto International Film Festival. For all things TIFF, www.tiff.net, T-I-F-F dot net. Hi, I'm Mayor John Tory, and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm old enough to remember when they called it U of T Radio. Film critic Daniel Garber. You can find him on CIUT Friday morning with his segment, Daniel Garber at the Movies. Hi, Daniel. Thanks, Donna. Robert Eggers is a celebrated young director known for his stunningly beautiful and very weird art house films. I talked with him at TIFF last year. The Lighthouse is only a second feature, but it won many awards and was nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography. It stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson and was shot in Nova Scotia in stunning black and white. Here's my interview with Robert Eggers. Hi, this is Daniel Garber, the movies for culturalmining.com and CIUT 89.5 FM. In the 19th century, on an Atlantic island rock, an old salt and a young jack tar share threadbare lodgings. Their job, keep the lighthouse burning to warn all passing boats. The old man's there for the long haul, but the younger lad seems to be a temporary replacement. But as the isolation grows, they become increasingly unhinged as they try to keep their senses at The Lighthouse. The Lighthouse is a new film about life on an isolated rock, as seen through the fantastical imaginations of the two men living there. It's written and directed by award-winning filmmaker Robert Eggers, his second feature after The Witch, 
The Lighthouse premiered at TIFF and is opening soon in Toronto. And I caught up with Robert Eggers at TIFF to tell us more about The Lighthouse. Hi, Robert. Thanks so much for meeting with me. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. So I've only seen two of your films, but they clearly sh share certain traits based on historical writing, black and white, with a hint of the supernatural or, or more than that in other ones. And uh, tell me, is this a steady pattern or is just how it's been so far? Uh, I developed um, several things uh, after The Witch that did not get uh, ultimately greenlit. Right. <laughs> uh, and this one, which uh, shares much of the same fabric as The Witch and is yet another New England folktale, uh, uh, did get did did was finally the thing on my slate that happened. Uh, all, all of those films were set in in the past, and all of them had a certain darkness. But although uh, they were they had they were much less in common than than these two. Mm -hmm. I also just want to say quickly that my I also I wrote this with my brother Max. Oh okay, like it wasn't uh, oh, okay. Sing, sing, I was not the only author of. This Sorry movie. about that. Like, no no yeah. no. Uh, no. But you're you're the one who's here, so I'll talk of about course. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how do how do these Movies form. Did you come across these manuscripts and say this would be a great movie, or did you come up with the German of an idea for a movie and said, "I want to find some writing on this to use"? Yes. Well, uh, talking about my brother, uh, he, okay. he had the idea of a ghost story in a lighthouse. Mm -hmm. That was a contemporary film that was very different from this. But I thought, ah, oh, ghost story in a lighthouse. That's such a good idea. I wish I'd come up with that. A couple months later, I said, "How's that go? That lighthouse movie coming?" He says, "That kind of sucks." Uh, and I asked him if I could take a crack at it, and because I am, when he said "Ghost Story in a Lighthouse," I immediately thought of uh, two lighthouse keepers in a cramped lighthouse keeper's cottage with uh, a broken kerosene lamp and this dusty, crusty, rusty, musty bl black and white movie. Um, so when I had that image and, and the idea of what the atmosphere would be, I started reading different stories about lighthouse keepers until I found something that was a, a true story. Uh, that was, again, not this story, but was something to riff off of. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, and then my brother and I, um, you know, uh, wrote this thing together and we used uh, research from uh, Herman well, Melville. Well, for, yeah, from 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 Melville and, and Stevenson and uh, and. Uh, Many other authors from the period, and there's, I mean, there's readily available huge yeah. books about maritime yeah. uh, uh, slang and, and, and dialect. But there was a Maine-based author, Sarah Orne Jewett, oh. who wrote in, in in dialect, like phonetically. She would, they're very sweet Maine tales, but she would interview farmers and uh, retired sea captains and fishermen, uh, and and her work was was one of the uh, the, the uh, most fruitful um, places for us to to, uh, for, to, 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 to dig from when, when creating the, the two different dialects of the different characters. So it's uh, Willem Dafoe is a voice sort of like a pirate. And uh, Pattinson sounds more like a Boston South Side working class, maybe a Bowery boy, but without the... Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. Wh wh where do the accents come from? How did that well, develop? Well, um, the... Uh, yeah, Rob, Rob's... Um, uh, you know, version of, of, of a down east accent comes from uh, inland people and, and farmers, uh, right? Uh, and and uh, and and Defoe's piratey accent uh, does come from, believe it or not, like the these uh, the, these 
old time Mainers. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, I have a theory that there actually was a Rodic, as in a hard R, dialect in people in the maritime communities. Yeah. Uh, uh, not the Maritimes, as in, in like, Canada, Canada yeah. but in, in, in the. Uh, the, the the maritime world of of New England. I could be wrong about that, but when you read uh, what Sarah Orne Jewett writes, it's hard to hear it with anything but that sort of semi-Bristolian uh, piratey accent. Right. Okay. And thankfully, Defoe can do something that to to us sounds like a cartoony pirate and make it like believable. <laughs> totally, totally. The watching the movie it seems very tightly scripted and storyboarded, but. At the same time, the inter- when the two men, when the two bodies interact, it felt almost improvisational. Was there any improvising? No, there was, movements there, or? there was there was no. I mean, there was there there are certain things that in the moment just kind of happen. Right. But 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 it sort of uh, controlled controlled chaos. Right. Uh, 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 the Robert Pattinson's uh, lumberjack. Dance, right? Uh, we rehearsed it many times, but the level at which he brought that on set was something uh, unexpected and new. But he knew where the camera was going to be, and, okay. and, and, uh, you know, and, and knew that he would have if he was going to improvise something, it would be based on like the camera placement. Well, I, I know it's, just, it's so cramped and uh, claustrophobic that you can't just go wild. You can't go over the place. It yeah, has yeah. to be. It has to be. Uh, yeah. Planned in advance. Yeah. Um, let's talk about sex. Um, right. Uh, Robert Pattinson character has this masturbatory tool of a, I guess, a whalebone, yep. a mermaid. Mm-hmm. So talk about mermaids and sex in the movie. Uh, w- yeah. Wow, no one's been so blunt before. I mean, um, uh, I, I, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I don't. I don't want to. I just. I'm only cautious because I don't want to. I, I, I'm. I'm. I. I like the film to ask questions sure, rather sure. than you know to give answers right, right? right so but but i i think clearly the the mermaid uh has a has a strong uh draw for for rob's character and and uh and 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 uh and and and, and while she is literally an object like right. literally like a figurine that he holds right. like she finally uh, has more more power <laughs> o- o- over him, right? Uh, uh, you know, though p- potentially like women's sexuality as power is a regressive trope, right? But it is certainly uh, true to uh, Robert Pattinson's nineteenth-century lumberjack turned lighthouse keeper's ex- experience, right? And uh, Last question. F- finally. Um, your movies are quintessential American, and yet both of them shot, I understand, in Canada. Uh, this one in uh, Lighthouse in Nova Scotia. And I understand someone told me you went up to the forests uh, of Canada for the first one, for The Witch. Uh, well, there's no uh, good New-, New England tax credits for filmmakers. Oh, okay. Well, that's, good. <laughs> that's good enough reason just for that. Yeah. But I, honestly, I had an incredible time in Nova Scotia. Uh, really, really, really loved the people there. 
Um, they, I mean, they're like New Englanders, only they're actually friendly. Right. Um, and uh, and and the crew is fantastic. I, I was it was a great pleasure, and I enjoyed living in Halifax for the time that I was there. It was it was great. Great. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks. Uh, this is Robert Ayers talking about his new film, The Lighthouse. This is Daniel Garber, the movies each Friday morning on CIUT 89.5 FM and on my website, culturalmining.com. Hi, this is Carol Pope on CIUT 89.5 FM. Hi, this is Donna G from The More the Merrier. Come join my night owls and early birds Wednesday mornings, 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. And happy tiffing. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is Daniel Garber, the movies on culturalmining.com and CIUT 89.5 FM and on Twitter at Cultural Mining. I'm Mark Tara from the syndicated radio show and number one LGBT podcast, Rainbow Country, which can be heard right here on CIUT Tuesdays, 11 p.m. Taking us out. How about some Lady Gaga? Good evening, everyone. How are you? Good evening and welcome. It's the opening night. Tonight, we thank you. I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you all for Holy shit, there's a lot of y'all. Um, I'm very proud to be here tonight, and I'm so grateful that you joined us. I'll stop till you get enough. Hello, Toronto. Happy Halloween, Michael. Muchas <laughs> gracias. Toronto, the best of them all. If you ever think about the base base, the watch from is I want to thank Toronto because. You have always honored, celebrated, exalted female directors. The warmth and the love that you gave me is something I will never forget in my life. It's so exciting to be here at Toronto in this gorgeous theater. This is just like Christmas Day. Thanks to you for coming. This is truly a very special evening for me. This is why we do what we do, you know. I love this festival and it's an honor to be back. Behind me is what we call society, what we see in our everyday, and what we have on screen. Let's keep on doing movies about us. We're making pictures about what's happening today in society. Thank you, thank you for coming!
My name is Charles Officer, and I'm the writer and director of Invisible Essence, The Little Prince on CIUT 89.5 FM. CIUT 89.5 Toronto. 